Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Crazy Kenny is going computer crazy with an incredible selection of home computers and computer software. Apple II, Apple IIe, Apple IIc, Apple IIgs. Crazy Kenny has them all and at the guaranteed lowest prices. Shop around, get the best prices you can find on Apple's, then go to Crazy Kenny and he'll beat them. Crazy Kenny is going computer crazy. Now is the time to get the home Apple that you've always wanted. Crazy Kenny, his computer prices are insane. Or not. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ken. How are you? <laughs> uh, feeling a little crazy. How are you? Uh, well, starting to feel crazy, too. Ah, well, welcome to Open Apple episode number 20. Oh, my God. We've made it to 20 episodes. 20. We can almost drink. <laughs> not that we would, of course. Of course not. Friends don't let friends drink in podcast. Uh, then you'd end up with a retro computing roundtable. Ouch. Oh, no. <laughs> Burn. We're just kidding, guys. We love you. Yeah, we do love the Retro Computing Roundtable, which is why we link to them on the side of every single page of open-apple.net. If you're not listening to them, then you should be. And if you're not listening to us, then... Then how are you hearing us? Right. Moving on. Uh, let's get right into feedback. We had so many responses to last month's episode. I can't remember the last time we had this much feedback. Yeah, people are actually listening, I guess. And writing in and not necessarily with bad things. That's a good thing. We have feedback from Antoine who wrote, uh, The latest episode of the Open Apple podcast was the most interesting, thanks to David Schmidt. I mean, the content was as great as before, but the attendance of David brought some more plus to the show. I really appreciate that one. The atmosphere was great. The discussions were interesting. A complete pleasure from the beginning to the end. Thank you, gentlemen. So to all our other guests, you wasted your time. But thank you, Antoine, and thank you, David. It was a lot of fun to uh, speak with you, David. And, of course, we've had Antoine on the show. Uh, Dane Nieder from Lincoln, Nebraska, wrote in. Well, he didn't write in from Lincoln, although I guess he could have, but via email, not postal. And he said that we had a lot of gaming discussion on the show last month, which we used to relegate to the Name the Game segment, and now it's sort of infiltrated into news. And he said we didn't talk too much about games, which was a concern I had, because for many people, their memories of the Apple II are based on games. Which makes sense to me. I mean, we all grew up playing stuff like Choplifter and Ultima and Oregon Trail. And, well, maybe not all of us, you know. So we, ha we do have some older members in the community, but a lot of us played various kinds of games anyway. Uh, we got an email from Egan Ford who said that Active GS is in the iTunes store, whether or not you've previously downloaded it. And let's see. Uh, Ewan wrote in with some clarifications about Sys. Uh, we mentioned that it was not included in the freeware release of Spectrum, and he wrote in to tell us why. A little bit more about that soon. Bob Holbrook wrote in. Uh, he actually was selling the Apple III with the profile on eBay that we mentioned last month under the name Mad Mac Sales, although he generally goes by the nickname Captain Bob. It's kind of cool that one of the eBay sellers that we were actually talking about was listening to the show. And finally, some feedback from Paul Hagstrom, who said that the advantage that the RCR podcast gets from recording live isn't that you can see them in a Google Hangout or on YouTube video. It's that you get to provide feedback on the show in real time. I'm not interested in doing a video podcast, but, well, there are some ways to do a live show that I would consider, but I still wouldn't be crazy about it. For example, there's a website, SceneSat. It's sort of like an online radio site, and I use them for a presentation I gave at a demo party back in June where people could listen to my presentation live 
and have a little text room chat going alongside it. And then both my presentation and their chat gets recorded in real time. So when you play back my presentation, you see what they were saying as they said it. So it syncs up, and that's kind of cool. The only downside is that we edit this show, and if we were to use something like SceneSat, SceneSat would probably be archiving the unedited version of this show. And even if they weren't archiving it, what people were listening to while they were offering that real-time text chat feedback, you know, they could record their own version of OpenApple that's unedited. And we do enough editing that I'm not really sure I want that version of the show getting out there. Right, exactly. What I do think might be fun is, like, if we told people when we're going to be recording and we just told them to dial in on Skype. We could have that. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, because then we wouldn't know who we'd be chatting with. We'd probably limit it to one person at a time. We'd still have the opportunity to edit the show for later publication because nobody would get to hear the entire show to themselves, just the part that they're on. Yeah. Yeah, so basically if you want to hear the show live, you need to be on the show, which has always been the case. Sure. That could be a little difficult, though, because I, I would think that you know if you're just calling into the show blind, you have no idea what we're talking about or what the topic might be. Well, the topic would have to be the person who's calling in. It'd be like a whole hour of user logins or something. Alternately, we could set up maybe like a Google voice box where people could call in and leave, you know, uh, voicemail feedback. I'm totally open to that. I I know RCR allows MP3 submissions of feedback, and they played mine a few months back. Mm -hmm. I think Ryan Suinaga also had a Google voice box for his A2 Unplugged podcast, but the only feedback he got was from somebody who was using a fake name and a fake voice. (laughs) Okay. And I really don't feel the need to open ourselves up to that kind of abuse. If somebody were to send us an MP3 that they want us to play on the show, I'd be open to playing it. You heard it. (laughs) It must be true. So, Mike, there has been some new toys announced this past month, not necessarily for the Apple II user, but certainly for the gadget geek. Stuff like the iPhone 5, the Kindle Fire HD, the Nook HD. Are any of those going on your wish list this year? Nope. Really? Not even the iPhone? Well, the iPhone is something that I've always been interested in, but I'm already invested in the Android ecosystem, I guess, if you will. You know, I, I spend a bunch of money on apps there, and I have to rebuy all the applications on the iPhone. And the other problem that I have is that the iPhone is on a release schedule now that's sort of the 180 degrees out of phase with when my contract ends. Oh. So basically, I would have to sit with a, an old phone for an extra six or eight months and wait for an iPhone. And I'm not saying that, that I, I wouldn't necessarily do that sometime in the future, but, you know, this time I, I picked up one of the, the Samsung Galaxy S3s, and I'm pretty happy with it. So I'm, I'm not regretting waiting for the iPhone this time. Now, next time, who knows? I see. Yeah. What about you? Any of those interest you? Of the three I mentioned, no, but I did pre-order a new toy this month, and that would be the Nintendo Wii U. Oh, the, the new poorly named... Nintendo console. <laughs> well, you know, that's what they said about the Wii and the Dreamcast, and, well, the Wii did well. This is the next-generation video game system from Nintendo. It is the successor to the Wii. It is called the Wii U. It is backward compatible with the Wii, but not with the GameCube, which the Wii is. It uses most of the same Wii controllers and peripherals, but it has its own tablet-like input device as well, which Nintendo is using for asymmetrical gameplay, which means four players have standard controllers, like on the Wii, and then one person has a tablet device, which gives them a different perspective on the gameplay. There are a lot of potential applications for it, such as, 
you know, Dungeons and Dragons, four people are the players, one person is the DM. That could be kind of cool. Or even for one player games like The Legend of Zelda, instead of switching to a menu to see your inventory, it's all right there on your tablet with a touch interface. So you could equip different weapons without even pausing the action. It comes out Sunday, November 18th, which is almost exactly six years after the Wii came out. I happen to be having a party that day, as I do every year, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So I'll have some friends over on opening day to test it out. And uh, yeah, it should be fun. Well, we eagerly await your review. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be the leading the way on this Apple II podcast. Yeah. A little bit more relevant, though, is a conference I went to this past weekend, the Boston Festival of Indie Games, or Boston Fig. Ooh. You heard about it? No, but that sounds like fun. Well, it was fun. Indie game developers are developers who are able to make games without the constraints or demands of a publisher or investor and focus on making games that probably appeal more to a niche than to the masses. And these were guys making games for a PC, Mac, Linux, iOS, Android, Ouya. They did have some non-digital games like cards and board games, but I was focused mostly on the digital aspect because I was covering it for Computer World. Andrew Plotkin was there. He has been mentioned on the show. He ran a Kickstarter f- that funded him to create some text adventures that he's still working on, and he was featured in Get Lamp as well and been interviewed for JuiceGS. Val Grimm was there, who was the organizer of At Party, the demo party I spoke at back in June. And briefly, Jason Scott was there, who told me that our discussion about the rhythm-based nature of the next Karataka game is wrong. I guess Jason actually has played the game, which isn't all that surprising, since he knows Joran Mechner from the Prince of Persia uh, source code rescue. And apparently Jason is not under NDA because he told me the nature of the game is such that you are fighting opponents and when they attack, you have to block and then flow that block right into your counterattack. So there is a rhythm to the game, but it's not a rhythm game in the sense like it's based on the music or anything. Uh, but yeah, Boston Fig was a lot of fun. Finally got to see the indie game, the movie. I have a Blu-ray coming because I backed them on Kickstarter, but until then, this was my first chance to see the film. Saw a documentary called Order of Ecstasy, which was all about uh, the Tetris Masters and the annual competition that they have. And they were also showing Get Lamp and Going Cardboard by Jason Scott and Lorian Green, respectively, uh, both of whom I know and both of films of which I've already seen. Anything going on in your world? Um, no, things have been pretty quiet over here. We just got settled in after the move. Great. So, yeah. You found you found room for all the retro hardware you decided to keep? <laughs> Not in the slightest, no. Uh, so it's probably going to stay in storage for a while and then get sold off. <laughs> Okay, just and hopefully you'll make enough to pay for the storage fees. I would hope so. Any ETA for when you are you'll feel settled in in your new home? Probably right as the lease is ending and it's time to move on to the next place. You think you'll move again? Yeah, we're gonna. I think we're looking at buying a place after this. Oh, congratulations! Thank you. Well, I intend to make an annual tradition to come through the Denver area on my way to Kansas Fest. So I. Hope to see you on the way to Kansas Fest next year. Well, we'll make that happen for sure. We don't have the dates for Kansas Fest yet, but actually this seems like as good a place as any to mention that I've been very happy to help organize the last nine Kansas Fest, but with stuff like JuiceGS and OpenApple and Apple II Bits and you know all the non-Apple II stuff I do in my real life, you may recall I did a poll earlier this year on you know what's of the most importance to the Apple II community. And actually, not all that many people voted Kansas Fest near the top of the list, which is not all that surprising because the online component of the Apple II has a much broader audience than the 40 people who go to Kansas Fest. So Kansas Fest is, for me, one of the highlights of my year. I, I love going to Kansas Fest. Look forward to continuing to go to Kansas Fest for as long 
as I'm able to and as long as the event is held. But 2012 will be the last event that I help organize. I will not be on the committee for 2013. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's not a sad thing, though. I mean, they have a fantastic team. And, you know, this was not any personal decision about our interaction. This I actually enjoyed working with them a lot. Uh, it's just that I need to have a little bit more balance in my life. Even Brian Peachy said on this show a couple months ago, he's like, wow, Ken, you have basically no work-life balance where work <laughs> is the Apple II. Yep. So, yeah, so I'll stay on the committee for a few more months to help with the transition and responsibilities that I may have. But uh, next year, I'm very much looking forward to being at Kansas Fest in the audience. Well, then congratulations. <laughs> Thank for making, you. Well, for making the choice and, and doing it. Because some people don't do that. They end up miserable. And... Yeah, that's just the thing is, you know, so many people stick with volunteer activities until they burn out. And that's not good for anybody. Right. Because one person ends up being exhausted. Bridges end up being, being burnt. And I have no desire to do that with anyone or anything in the Apple II community. So, uh, yeah, this is this is a big part of my life. And that's not changing. Great. Yes. So I will see you at Kansas Fest. I don't know. Yes, I will. Okay. All right. In the meantime, we'll see somebody else on this show. Let's bring them on. Sounds good to me. Hi, this is Earl Evans of the RetroBits Podcast, and you're listening to Open Apple. This month on the show, we have a celebrity in the Apple II community. We've loved him. We've lambasted him. He's been the star of every show, despite not even being on the show. And finally, we've gone right to the source. And this month, we've gotten on the air with Ewan Wanup. Hi, Ewan. Hi. Hi, Ken and Mike. Hey, Ewan. So, Ewan, you are calling us all the way from the UK. Is that correct? That's right. And what part of the UK are you in? I'm living in a village called Box, which is just to the east of Bath, about 100 miles west of London. So you live in a bath in a box. Uh, that's right, yes. Everybody makes jokes about it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sure those are not new to you. No, the worst one is when I give my address and they say, yes, it's a box, but what's a box number? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see how that'd be confusing. Sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so apparently they have Apple IIs over there. They do indeed. Shockingly. Yeah, so we, we have them in, uh, well, I got my first one in 1979, the tail end of 79. Um, and uh, there were, in those days, they were the one to have. You, you say it's the one to have, but I thought over there they had machines like the Spectrum that were more popular and the Sinclair. They came along later. Oh, I see. After 79. They came along in the early 80s. So you were very much an early adopter then? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Were you ever swayed by the more popular machines of the time, like the Spectrum? Well, not no, because by that time I was steeped in the, in the Apple II by the time they came along, and uh, so far superior machine to the Spectrum. And what were you doing with your Apple II back then? Well, it was curiosity at first, I want, and then I wanted to start doing some programming. I wanted to make it do things, and uh, that was really what got me going, um, was discovering how I had to use a bit of machine code to actually read a keyboard adapter that had been supplied with the computer to give lower case, and so on. So it really started from the very beginning. I was making it do things. And were you learning this for professional development or as a hobby? As a hobby, purely as a hobby. But I was working in the graphic design department of an art college, so there was a kind of a, a kind of parallel there. Now, art design, I would think that Macintoshes would be popular there. Yes, but they weren't invented in 79. <laughs> but when they did come along, I was given the job of looking after them all because uh, I was the only one who had any computer experience. And that was in 88 when they, we got our first Macintoshes. So you were leading the charge at your college? 
Oh yes, and our college was leading the the charge for all the college, art colleges um, because we got in about two years before everybody else. So uh, we, for a glorious few years, all of our students who left were getting jobs automatically because they knew how to use a Macintosh and use PageMaker. So an entire generation of artists owe a debt of gratitude to just one man. Uh, well, partly, partly. <laughs> but it was also, I mean, they were going out in the design studios they were going to work in. Uh, they were the old guard who didn't know how to use a computer, so they were hiring people rapidly to take on board this new desktop publishing. Now, despite that art background, it seems to me that most of your work with the Apple II has been in the field of telecommunications. Yes, that was that came about from the very beginning because uh, I got myself a acoustic modem to start with, then a homemade modem, um, and then sort of various 300-board modems and so on, building up from there. And uh, I couldn't afford ASCII Express at the time. It was difficult to get software from the States over here anyway. Um, so I decided to... Uh, write my own and uh, that got me going and ever since then i've only written programs about things i understand and know about closely you you said the, uh, you used a homemade modem does that mean you you built your own yes oh yes there was a company over here that's uh, sold a kit um so you you built it up from a kit wow so so you built the hardware and wrote the software for it oh yes yes wow my background had been sort of building bits of hardware long before you know, I got into the computer. I've been playing with electronics since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. Did you use this telecommunication software to join a wider community of the Apple II? Because your name didn't become known to me until you released Spectrum. Well, what happened in the early days was I was joining, I was going into bulletin boards. There was various bulletin boards over here, but they weren't Apple specific. Um, but then eventually there was one Apple-specific one, which I helped set up, which was for the originally the BASAG, but then became Apple 2000, the user group. Um, and eventually I took that board on myself and ran it for a number of years. But initially there wasn't an Apple II-specific board, um, so I was just um, accessing what there was out there. It was just in the heady days of bulletin boards, and you know those that were interested in computers wanted to access them. Now, you you mentioned BASOG. Would that be the British Apple Software Users Group? That's right, yes. And we did we changed its name uh, about halfway through its life to Apple 2000 because it sounded better and it sounded <laughs> more forward-looking. This was just before, two, about, I think, in 1996 or so. It was before the 2000, so it was a kind of looking forward. Do I recall that you also had a responsibility to the print publication of that group? Oh, yes. Yes, because uh, I was, I think it was about the second or third year of, of BASAG that I got involved in the committee um, and gradually sort of worked my way up. Uh, eventually became chairman of it for the last years of its life. But for a big chunk of those last years, I was w working on the Apple II side of the magazine. We produced every two months an 80-page magazine, and I edited the first 40 pages of that, which was for the Apple II, and the last eight, last 40 pages were for the Macintosh. Um, and uh, in the intervening months, we produced a, a short newsletter. And all of that's um, available on my website. I think you, know, you should have the links for those to uh, look at all those past issues mm -hmm. of the magazine. So basically, when I'm ready to retire from Juice GS, I should be handing it over to you. No, no, no. I've had my fill of all of that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so Spectrum, it came out from Seven Hills Software in 97. Is that correct? 
That's right, but the history of that was back in 82 to 83. I was approached by Pace um, Electronics over here, which was, they've now moved on to other things, but they were a small company selling Apple IIs, and they approached me because they wanted software to access Prestel, which was a um, sort of European-based teletext um you could use it for bulletin boards, it's used for other information services, but it used a particular font um, on a on either specific hardware or emulated on the computer. And they wanted it for that. So I wrote a program called Data Highway that was first published in 84, and it had two parts to the program. One part was just an ordinary uh, bulletin board, 80-column, simple telecoms program and the other part was this specifically this Prestel um, teletext based graphics which were common around Europe so I had a monopoly in in Europe for the software at that stage because there was no it, there was no similar system in America so there was no competing software coming over from there and that then evolved into a program called Antelope which was uh, my first foray into Prodos and worked on 80-column screens, just straight telecommunications on that. And then when the 2GS came along, I started work on that. And actually, when I got my 2GS, I got it as a developer and told Apple that I was going to develop the definitive communications program for the 2GS. And they kind of uh, wryly smiled when I said that, but proved true in the end. But uh, then I was introduced to Dave Hecker at Seven Hills, and that's how Spectrum came about. And Spectrum has become, in the 15 years since its original release, much more than a telecom program, thanks to the exhaustive external commands and scripting language that you developed. Yes. Well, that was a combination of... of I did all the work, but there was input from all kinds of people on the ideas front, because Dave Hecker at Seven Hills had a team of uh, very respected developers working, people like uh, Richard Bennett in Australia was working with for them, and they came up with various ideas, and we evolved them and developed them. So it, it broadened out, and the, the scripting language built into Spectrum really came about because I wanted to do what Talk is Cheap had done. And so I initially copied all the commands, or rather made all the commands work, so that a Talk is Cheap script would run in Spectrum, and then it just evolved and it developed and got more and more as time went on. And you mentioned Richard Bennett. You got to meet him at Kansas Fest about a year or two later, right? That's right. That was after Spectrum, of course, had been launched. Um, so I get in 96 we first met. Um, and that was that was a momentous um, period where Jeff was there, Jeff Weiss, and uh, we we all sat one evening, Saturday evening, in the dorm. And Jeff said, "Well, look, the internet works like this," and he showed how it's entirely text-based. And uh, Richard and I are sort of jaws dropped, and uh, as a result, um, Sis was born from there. That we actually, you know, made made a web browser. Had Richard already developed Marinetti at that point? No, no, no. Marinetti came. Richard went away. Out of that meeting, I said, I'll go away and produce um, an engine, a graphics engine for, for the web uh, so that it would display HTML. Jeff said he would do the scripting, the Spectrum scripting, to, to, to because he knew more about uh, how it all worked. So that he would write that side of it. And Richard said he would go away and make a TCP IP stack because... Uh, up until 96, we'd all been assumed that, I think it was Derek Talbot, was going to produce a TCP IP stack, um, and it then became very rapidly clear in that he wasn't able to produce this by 96. So Richard 
went off and he started marinating. And since so much of CIS was written by Jeff Weiss, that's why it wasn't included in your reclassification last month. That's right, because he has the, he's already, he'd already made his side of it open source, uh, well, about two years ago, two, three years ago. Um, and I'd agreed that my HTML engine, which has since been issued as a tool and has been used in various other uh, programs of mine could be part of that. So he's in control of that. So that's why I can't release it. Uh, it was already open source anyway. It was already freeware in a sense anyway, but I couldn't include it with mine. So mm-hmm. that's why only the stuff that I was directly responsible for, I, I made freeware and put onto my website. I don't want to say this is often the case, but it's not unusual for a programmer reclassifying all his software as freeware to be the last thing he does before he ceases development because he wants all his legacy to be accessible. So what does this mean for the future of your development with the Apple II? I am still continuing to develop as I've always done. Uh, the main reason really I got, I decided to make it all freeware was that sales were, were, were dropping as the years went on and there was less importance in a sense for Spectrum than there had been because I think my more recent programs are probably more useful these days and there were also distribution problems as uh, some of you know. So can you give us a sneak peek at what, what you're working on now? Well currently I'm just finishing off another upgrade to SAFE, the, the FTP program. Um, it's really this has come about because Andrew Rowan um, got in touch with me uh, over a number of points that he would like to have seen in it. So they've been added in. And so we've been working together, and uh, it's nearly ready for release. We're just, when the two of us are happy that it's bug-free, I'll get that out. Um, it adds a few new features, um, uh, things like uh, ability to download from uh, far from an HTTP website, so that directly in the program. And that uh, expands its usability so that... Uh, users can can get files downloaded from um, either an FTP or an HTTP site directly, which makes life much easier um, getting it straight into the 2GS rather than having to go through some external route. Um, I've also incorporated uh, uh, support for Balloon so that when you download uh, a Shrinkit file, it will automatically send it off to Balloon so that you can uh, extract it immediately. And uh, that's led on to support for other NDAs so that um, what will happen is if you double-click a file in the home folder, um, it will then send out an IPC call and anything that's listening that can handle that file will appropriately process it. So that can be, for instance, a Hermes word processor might open up a, a text file, a Bloon would open up a Shrinkit file or a BXY file, um, or any of the picture editors that happen to, you know, can handle a picture might open up a picture. Oh, that's wonderful. It's just like the post-process downloads preference in Safari. Yeah, yeah, it's things like that. So it, it's expanding its usability of the program. And also I've done a lot of cleanup, uh, cosmetic cleanup. We've now got the home and away lists are now sorted. So that means you can uh, easily jump around using the letter keys on the keyboard. So if you want to find a file beginning with F, just press F and it will run down to the top of all the Fs it finds. So there's a lot of little cosmetic things like that being, being uh, you know, added in. And just to back up for a sec, you mentioned meeting Richard at Kansas Fest. I, too, have met you at Kansas Fest, but it's been more than a decade since you've been there. Uh, it is. The last time I was there was 2001. Any hopes of coming back? I don't know. I might I might do. It's it's a long way from here, and uh, I did have some health problems a few years back, which have been resolved, so that sort of affected things. But uh, you never know. It may come back. 
Because your previous trips to Kansas Fest were with either Joe Cohn or Jeff Weiss, right? Yes. Well, one of the things from coming from uh, from a long way away, uh, especially as you get older, is you want somewhere as a resting point to recover from all the jet lag. Um, so that was one of the original factors. So I stayed with various people on that basis. Uh, but then I made friends with Joe, and so I spent quite some time with him over there. And uh, when I was last over, we did that wonderful camping trip. We came down through Utah and then, you know, saw all the various places like Yellowstone and so on on the way back. So we, we incorporated Cancer Fest in the middle of a two-week camping trip. Well, if you ever want to see the Rocky Mountains, I think somebody on this podcast would be happy to host. I came through Denver because when we did that trip, we came, we came up from Utah and then came through Denver and then straight along the, the freeway from there to Kansas Fest through uh, what w- wasn't actually a tornado, it turned out, but it was almost. Um, we had to pull off um, and we, the car was nearly blown over with the, with the winds. It's quite, quite extraordinary weather, yes. Well, I've driven to and from Denver to Kansas City several times, and I have never had anything quite that exciting happen. It's a long and boring drive. It is, it is. But it, uh, we stopped halfway along, and uh, they, at the motel, the, the, the woman in the desk said, oh, that's just normal afternoon weather, she said, when we described what had happened to us. They probably don't get many visitors from Bath in the middle of Kansas. <laughs> probably not. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So for this month's news, um, we missed a few items last month because, uh, well, we were talking about video games, which is fine. Uh, but some things did come out that we didn't talk about. Uh, first of all, the uh, EWWA, which is also uh, the, the electronic version of What's Where in the Apple PDF, uh, has been released. Um, you can buy it now from their website for, I think it's nineteen ninety five. Um, it's a nice DRM-free PDF that you can download immediately when you purchase it. Um, I highly recommend supporting this guy. He put a lot of effort into it. Um, yeah, I loved your interview with him a couple of months ago. I wasn't actually a, a part of that interview, but it obviously aired on this podcast. Did you participate in the production of the book at all? Uh, a little bit. Uh, I He he uh, put out a call for people to check for bugs and errors and typos and things like that. I didn't participate in that because I didn't have uh, a lot of time. We were kind of in the middle of moving and things like that. Um, so, no, I guess I didn't participate other than the interview and then of course um you know taking my my pdf scan down off the website that sort of thing (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that was very gracious of you well well, he did ask me he contacted me and said could you please take this down this belongs to me and so so i did and i kind of i don't i I haven't talked to him about sales numbers and i don't know if that's something he would even tell me about but i sort of feel bad because my copy of that pdf ended up on several other websites that weren't so cooperative and it's still out there and Hmm. um, i just hope that that hasn't affected his sales at all oh nothing you can do about that well yeah i could have not put it up there in the first place but um another quick news item uh jace the java Apple Computer Emulator is now officially out of beta. How long was it in beta? Uh, for a while. I've been seeing updates for it for at least most of this year, probably into last year. I'm not sure what about this particular release made it this is beta and this is not beta. Brendan Robert, I think his name is, the, the guy that programs it, has, has announced that it's no longer in beta. So if you've been waiting, now's the time to download that. Rich Dreher has lifted the order limit on the CFFA 3000 card. Uh, it used to be limited to two per customer. 
been raised to five cards. That sounds about right. Yeah. So if you've been if you've been waiting to stock up on those, you can do that now. I don't know how many he has left, but it sounds like he didn't completely sell out of the second run, which is shocking and unprecedented. Well, I, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that much. He's been making these cards for ten years now, you know, and I'm sure that there are some people that st- are were happy with their old ones and didn't upgrade. And, and I mean, you, you're talking about a fairly limited user base out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I expect it'll sell out eventually. Yeah, Ewan, did you get one? I didn't this time around because I had have the original one, and uh, I don't use my real two GS very much at all because uh, as a programmer, I'm using uh, an emulator all the time for speed. Um, so I thought about it, but the cost plus the input duties that I've had to pay um, really brought it up to you know wasn't really worth it for the for the extra features I would gain. What sort of import taxes do they put on a product like that? Uh, we pay 20% VAT plus a, a duty, customs duty, um, and handling charges. So something like 30-40% would be added on. Wow. And that's even yeah. if the item is marked as a gift? Ah, if it's marked up as a gift or less than about $18, $20, no, there's nothing to pay at all. But uh, he wasn't able to do that for me. I asked whether he could do it, and he said no, he couldn't. Um, so that um, I decided that just brought it up too high a price to pay for one. So you'd al- it'd almost be, in the long run, cheaper if you'd just come to Kansas Fest and buy one. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the point, yes. Well, which emulator are you using? I'm using Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. But over the years, I've used uh, various ones. Uh, I can't, I'm trying to remember the name of the one Apple um, p- started to produce but never made public. That'd be Gus. Uh, that's right, yes. I used Gus initially from uh, got that in, 80, in 96 and started using that. Then moved on to Bernie to the rescue when that came along. Um, and then uh, Sweet 16 now. Uh, remind me, did Gus ever become publicly available? No, not officially. No, it is available on the, I think, from the various places, you know, the usual sources, but uh, it's not, it was never officially made available. It was never officially finished, and it was, uh, there are some bugs in it. So, how did you get your copy? Um, because I got it through Seven Hills, who officially had a copy from Apple. Uh, Seven Hills were official developers, so I got one from them as an official developer, effectively. I see. Back around 97, I was still in university, and some Apple representatives came to speak to the student body. Afterward, I asked them about Gus, and they kind of looked at each other, didn't ring a bell, and so I jogged their memory and said, you know, it's the Apple II developers, a couple of guys working on this emulator. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're just a bunch of hackers. And I, I passed this along to the Bernie to the Rescue guys, and they were just beaming. They're like, wow, they think their own guys are just a bunch of hackers. That must mean what we're doing is fantastic. Let's see, what else you got for us, Mike? And the final news item, and this is more, I don't know if this is officially news or anything, but it might be an item of interest to Apple II users. Uh, Trip Hawkins, uh, founder of Electronic Arts and early Apple employee, was interviewed uh, for Edge Online. It's a fairly extensive interview that they broke up and serialized across several days. And he talks about, you know, starting EA and, and trying to deal with uh, quote, superstar hackers uh, and programmers at the time like uh, Richard Garriott and Bill Budge. Uh, it's definitely a good read. Yeah, he was the director of strategy and marketing at Apple in 1982 when he left to form Electronic Arts, which now is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, video game publishers in the world. 
Now, he's no longer with EA, is that, is that right? I believe so. I think he left EA in 91, though he remained on the board, to form 3DO, which was a failed video game console and the first 32-bit CD-ROM system, if I recall. I think I remember that console. Yeah, it sold for between six and $800. Whoa. And consoles that debut at that much don't tend to have a huge long-term success. But it was unique because... 3DO itself wasn't the hardware, it, w- it was the technology which was then licensed out. So unlike, say, the Xbox 360, which is made exclusively by Microsoft, there were a couple of different game companies that made 3DO machines. But I guess even that strategy didn't work, kind of like how Apple's clones didn't last long. Yeah, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't real big into the consoles back then, so I'm not too familiar with that history. So when you say that's the end of the news items, that's the end of last month's news. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that's the end of the stuff that we missed. Now onto the new stuff. Yeah, we have a couple. VCF Midwest just occurred. Is that right? Yeah, that was uh, last weekend, I think. Uh, last weekend, the time we record this, of course, and probably about a couple of months ago by the time people listen to it. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Uh, so let's see. VCF Midwest 7 happened, which is pretty much all their website says, and then there's a bunch of links to photos, but there's no real uh, date, place, write-up. It's sort of a sparse website. But the Midwest, does that mean Ohio? I, I think that happens in Chicago. Chicago, that's right. I remember hearing about that on some other retrocomputing podcast. Yeah, that's one thing I've always been curious about with Vintage.org, which is the official website for all the vintage computer festivals, is that it doesn't tend to get updated very quickly. If I go on there now, there's no mention of VCF Midwest happening this year, and there's no listing for 2013, and we know that there are VCF events occurring next year. Ewan, are there still Apple II like, user groups or conventions or anything like that in your neck of the woods? Not that I know of. They've all died, uh, as far as I know, many years ago now. Because there was a vintage computer festival, or VCF Europa, that happened, I think, last in 2008. That was the ninth annual such event. I don't, I don't remember that. I think there may still be a sort of lively spectrum, uh, you know, gaming community around because they did have about two years back a special open day over at Bletchley Park. They, you probably know the museum there, which was uh, where the Enigma machine was hacked uh, during the war. Uh, and they, I went over to this. Uh, this sort of exhibition, and in the middle of it was a, a room full of, uh, of enthusiasts playing the spectrum. So you know, there may well still be that kind of area, but it's you know that those those machines, but it's not something I've ever been involved in. Actually, when I dig a bit deeper into Vintage.org, it looks like VCF Europa is still being held every year, and the next one is April twenty seventh to the twenty eighth. There aren't really too many more details at this time, but there uh, is still apparently a vintage computer scene in Europe. I'm not surprised. Now, also, something you just mentioned uh, reminded me of a question I had for you. So the Spectrum was a machine that was popular over there in the 80s, and now you're the developer of a program called Spectrum. Any Is that a, just a coincidence? Um, that's a coincidence. The the name I was, I think, I can't remember now what I called. Um, gaz- no, hang on, that's right. I, earlier I talked about Antelope. It wasn't. That was Gazelle, that program um, I did for the, for the Apple II. Um, it, the one... I, that I started that became Spectrum was called Antelope. Um, and Dave Hecker didn't like that name. Well, it was just a kind of a working title anyway. And he came up with Spectrum. But, but that was probably before spec, the Spectrum was much known over your way. Uh, I'm not sure. Mm. 
So it's not true that if you had been developing the software in the United States, you would have released it under the name Commodore. <laughs> no, that's not true. Okay. I don't know how these rumors get started. I think that weren't, weren't the Spectrums over here marketed by Timex as Timex Sinclair machines? That sounds about right. The ZX80 and the ZX81. You mean the ZX80? I'm sorry. That's right. Carrington would have your head, sir. Yes, ZX80. No, there's no Z over here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And there's another VCF coming up, courtesy David Grealish, who came to his first Kansas Fest this year. He was so inspired by our success that he wants to recreate it in his own neck of the woods. So Georgia is going to be home to Vintage Computer Festival Southeast 1.0 coming February 9th. It's going to be held just outside Atlanta, accessible by public transit. They're going to be coordinating uh, transit among attendees, kind of like we do. But, of course, m more like VCF elsewhere than Kansas Fest, the event will be a broad spectrum, there's that word again, of all vintage machines, Atari, Amiga, Commodore. VCF tends to go back much farther than the personal computers, so they have mainframes and the like that need to be hauled into these places. And he also says that he's going to be funding the event partly through a Kickstarter. David ran a successful Kickstarter once before for his historically brewed book, which is now available. And so he's going to revisit that medium and procure funding for VCF, which I think is a fantastic idea. Cool. Can't wait to hear about it. Either of you planning on attending this event? Uh, well, not me, no. No, not me either. And I, I wish I could be the, the lone dissenter to throw my hat into the ring and lend my support for David, but unfortunately I won't be either. There are uh, a lot of other trips I'm going to be making in the coming months. I'm g going out of town for a week in October. I'm going to PAX East in March, I think it's March, and then Kansas Fest, of course, in July. And also, historically, having attended VCF before, I know that my interest is very focused on the Apple II and going to an event where that's just a small part of the overall scene tends to not be a valuable experience for me. Although I do have family in Atlanta, and it would be cool to go see them. It's just, it's hard to justify another trip in an already packed year. But I do wish him luck, and I wish the event luck, and I'll certainly be doing my best to promote any opportunity I can get. Yep, can't wait to see pictures and write-ups and the whole thing. And possibly even toss him a few bucks on Kickstarter. Well, I wouldn't go as far as that. <laughs> I'm uh -huh. kidding, David. You, we love you. Cheap bleep. <laughs> All right, let's see. Speaking of Kickstarter, we have a Kickstarter called Christmas Bites. As of September 29th, there are only five days to go, so it'll probably be closed by the time you hear this. And unfortunately, it's probably going to close with a lack of success. They're asking for $82,000 to fund a short film about a 14-year-old boy who loves video games but also is first discovering women. And how is he ever going to balance those two interests? <laughs> okay. Oh, come on. We've all been there. <laughs> Surely that subject's been done to death. Yeah, uh, I don't know that I want to live through that again. I had to live through it when I was 14. Well, this film is set in 1982, and they're doing everything they can to really recreate that time and period with... You know, the cars and the sofas and the shag carpeting and 8-bit Nintendo and Atari. No, not Nintendo. That wasn't out yet. So Atari. But unfortunately, they have only $6,000 at this time out of the requested 82. That's unfortunate because they've recruited some talent. It sounds like 8-bit Weapon and Computer, the chiptune artists, are going to be featuring their work in this film if the film is made. 
I have found that very often when you have that level of talent attached to a production, it finds a way to get made even without the Kickstarter. And so I'm hopeful that Wild Mouse Films finds a way to make Christmas Bites into a reality. I confess I haven't donated because they have an enormous, enormous list of rewards. And I'm like, I, you can scroll like 10 pages down and you're still only at the $100 level because they have so many options and it's confusing. And if I recall, if you actually want to get the film itself, like on DVD or something, the minimum pledge level to get the film, I think, is about $75. It's kind of high. Yeah, usually if you pledge 10 bucks for a film, you get a digital download. 20 bucks, you get a DVD. 30 bucks, you get a Blu-ray. These guys, it starts at $75. For a project like this, I don't want a shirt or a scarf or somebody's autograph. I actually want to see the product that I'm helping fund. And so that means the minimum for me to donate to this project is $75. And that's just not worth it for me. Yeah, that's a lot for feelies. Yeah, really. I'd, I'd be happy with a download code off Steam or something. Yeah, me too. Ewan, do you use Kickstarter much? I don't, no. No, it's, it's, I don't think the concept's got over here very much. I mean, I know about it from what you've all said, but, uh, I don't know whether anybody over here is doing it. Well, to launch a project on Kickstarter, you need to have a United States based address or partner. So I can imagine why your colleagues aren't funding themselves over there, but I think there are, I can't remember their names right now. I'm pretty sure I mentioned them in an article I wrote for JuiceGS earlier this year, but I, there are crowdfunding based websites based in the UK. It may well be, yes. And I think if you wanted to, you could probably give your money to a Kickstarter project. You know, they would just translate the pounds to dollars. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those who play interactive fiction games on a regular, regular basis, you're probably familiar with the Society for the Promotion of Adventure Games, or SPAG. They used to put out a monthly, uh, e-zine, which covered textual interactive fiction and other types of interactive narrative through reviews, interviews, and articles. I'm sorry, it wasn't monthly. It was published on a quarterly basis. Um, and it was run by Jimmy Mayer. I hope I pronounced that properly. Um, who you also know as the Digital Antiquarian. He pu- publishes a lot of, or he posts a lot of blog entries on, um, gaming and, and computer history. Uh, he edited that magazine for quite a while and then he handed it over to somebody else. Um, and when he, hand- when somebody, when that other person took the reins, only an issue and a half was posted. Um, the last one that was officially posted was number 60 on April 25th, 2011. And Jimmy recently announced that they found somebody else to step in. And hopefully production will begin again on new new issues of the easing. I don't know who this, edi- this editor's name is Danny Willis taking over, but hopefully they will do a better job than the previous editor. I would think that the interactive fiction community, since it is enjoying a sort of a renaissance right now, would need some sort of a publication. I'm surprised that they allowed SPAG to go defunct at all. Yeah, that was sort of disappointing, and, and there are various message boards where people were posting for a long time, well, hey, what's happening? Where's this? Where's the latest issue? And so uh, the, the fall-off in production did not go unnoticed, and somebody stepped up to answer the call, and... We all have our fingers crossed. Ewan, would you say that the name Spag is something of an unfortunate choice for this magazine? <laughs> it is. It's, uh, I immediately think of spaghetti bolognese. 
Well, it's interesting. Wade Clark, who is a text adventure author in Australia, he wrote to me several months ago to say, in Australia and possibly the UK, spag can be a verb meaning to hawk up a great big yellow gob of phlegm. Ew. Oh, I don't know that one, no. No, I just think a spag blog is the, is a common description for spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> Uh, even in Worcester, Massachusetts, which isn't far from me, we had a store named Spags. It was a great pig, not like a department store, but it was named after the founder whose nickname was Spag because his favorite food was spaghetti. Sort of a roundabout way to get a name for a business, but there you have it. So, yeah, The interactive fiction competition actually is being run by Stephen Grande, I believe. Or IF Comp. Yes, exactly. And I think it runs the entire month of September, so by the time the show airs, it probably will have concluded. And I know we have some Apple II users entering into the fray, probably using Inform, which, as Carrington showed us this summer, can be ported to the Apple II, although I haven't tested that myself. But it'll be fun to see all the games that come out of there. And I was recently re-watching a part of Get Lamp, where Stephen was interviewed, and he said that people are intimidated by the idea of making a game as big as Zork, but if they put themselves in the mindset of, oh, just make a small game that I can enter into a competition, they're like, yeah, that becomes more manageable. And so this competition actually encourages a lot of artists and authors to try their hand at something that they otherwise might be too intimidated to do. Yeah, I always look forward to to the uh, seeing the winners of the competition because um, it's a great way to get into playing these games. Um, you know, especially if you've already played through Infocom a bunch of times and you're looking for something new to play. The the winners are usually you know top quality um, entries and and they're definitely worth your time to to investigate. I recently started playing Dreamhold, which is a text adventure game from Andrew Plotkin. I played it on my iPad through Frots, the text adventure simulator, and I was really in need of a map. And I thought, well, I could get out some paper and start drawing a map just like the old days. But then at some point, I had previously installed a dedicated Dreamhold app on my iPad just for that one game, and it has an inbuilt mapping function. And I was kind of annoyed that I wasn't playing that version, so I switched over to that, started over. And if you know how to play a text adventure, like a specific one, like what rooms to go in, how to solve the puzzles, you can get through it pretty quickly. Sure. And so I recreated my progress to that point without much trouble, and now I'm playing Dreamhold. And it's kind of embarrassing that this game is described as a tutorial, like an introduction to IF, and it does have some in-game hints and the like, but... Even without those hints, I'm not finding it all that obvious. Like some of the puzzles are actually kind of challenging. You know, I've I've been able to solve them so far without any hints. But on the other hand, I'm like, I'm too old to need hints. It depends on the game, I think. Though, I mean, some of these puzzles that you run into are are not necessarily logically solved. No, that's definitely a hallmark of text adventures and also point and click adventures. Right. Ewan, are you much of an interactive fiction player? No, I'm not. Uh, you know, my I don't play that many games. It's just sort of quick and quick and dirty ones that I play. Um, and two GS one that I really still come back to occasionally is Yahoo. No, not Yahoo. Sorry, Yahtzee. Yahtzee. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, it was rather nicely done. Um, it looks good and it plays well. And I haven't found the one as good as that on any of the other platforms. Yeah, I, I still like to boot up my Apple II to play Milestones every now and then. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, what, what's the name of the card game? It's like Miles Borns or something? No, I don't, I don't know the original, no. 
but and I remember Joe Cohn was a huge fan of Bouncing Inferno from the FTA. I don't know if he actually played it, but I know he was very impressed by it. Well, Spag is back in publication, and so is Juice GS. The day that we're recording this podcast, I'm coming to the studio right from the post office where I dropped off the September 2012 issue. It's another 20 pages of retro computing goodness for the Apple II community. The cover story, as always, for September is Kansas Fest, which was held a couple of months ago. We also have in this issue the conclusion to the three-part programming tutorial for the language of Logo, written by Peter Neubauer. We have a review of Dave Finnegan's book, The New Apple II User's Guide. Dave, of course, being an alumnus of this podcast. We have Eric Shepard's theoretical musings on what the next GSOS would look like. That would be System 7.0, sort of a wish list for the future. And, of course, much, much more. I was going to say, I found um, Shepard's article fascinating. Um, because there's been lots of musing all, over the years, but that was the first realistic, I think, set of proposals if, if anybody was to go forward. And Sheppy's article was a lot of fun. I had proposed to him that he write something about System 6.0.2, and he said, ah, that's too trivial, I'm going to do S- System 7.0. And what he submitted was not at all what I expected, it was better. So I was very happy to print that. Now, I encountered a... Let's see, sort of a conundrum with Sheppy in the follow-up to that article, because I said, would it be possible to write another article about what an upgraded hardware for the Apple II would look like? And we're both not really sure that that's a feasible topic for an article, because at what point do you mess with the core hardware to the point where it's no longer an Apple II. I mean, would a modern Apple II just be a Mac with an Apple II emulator? Would it have any resemblance to the machines that came out in the 80s? Or would a new Apple II just be the Mark Twain? Do we already know what the future of the Apple II would be? Uh, what, what do either of you think? Well, I, I don't think it's necessary to go beyond what we now have, because uh, if you've got a, a 2GS maxed out with its RAM, and you've got a CF card in it, um, and an Ethernet or an other Ethernet card, you've got really all you need. Um, it's the software side of it which perhaps needs developing further, and certainly the, the OS could be developed and could be much more useful. I mean, I find constraints in what I'm doing every so often with uh, the software as it is, with the, sort of the system software as it is. Of course, you could always put all those maxed-out accessories that you named into a stock Apple II so people don't have to buy separate items. That's sort of what the Mark Twain was going for, you know, inbuilt floppy drive, inbuilt hard drive, etc. Yeah, uh, yes, that would work. Um, but the cost of uh, somebody producing a new Apple II, I think, would far outweigh um, getting an existing one and just adding a few cards on. Probably. I mean, you're right. It does run into the point of how much would you pay for an Apple II in the year 2012? I think really what I'm saying is it's realistic that the the OS could go up to 7. That's something that could be realistically done and everybody could benefit from it. But that uh, actual hardware is really in the realms of uh, dreaming what we would like to have, but it's probably unrealistic if it would ever happen. But as Shappy's article mentioned, some of the updated software would necessarily require new hardware, like USB drivers requires a USB interface, etc. Uh, true, true. The graphics could be improved dramatically, and there was, of course, the uh, second sight card, but that never really got properly um, debugged and uh, is not available. You know, there's very few of them around. And it was very expensive, as I recall. It was, yes. 
How expensive is very expensive? Didn't it retail for five or six hundred US dollars? Was it, was it that much? Because I have one, and I can't imagine I would have paid that much for it. Yes, I have one. I have one too, but I can't remember whether I was given that by Seven Hills or whether I bought it myself. Suggested retail price of the second site card is one hundred and eighty dollars, one hundred seventy nine ninety five. Where'd you find that? It's currently on the ground FTP site, collections, AOL, hardware library, second site, VGA info dot text. Wow. Okay. That's where it goes through all the specifications and features. And there's a little Q&A about the card. Now, that price is comparable to what a CFFA costs nowadays, but the second site card, what, I'm sorry, what year did you say that was posted? There's no date on this one, unfortunately. So it was whatever, whenever this was about to be released. Well, definitely in the 90s, because 180 yes. bucks back then was more than it is now due to right. inflation. But still, that's, it's still a far cry from 500. I think Steve Weirich may have written a blog post or two on his site about sort of a parallel universe where the Apple II continued. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Another print publication I want to bring listeners' attention to is Retro Gamer. Are you familiar with this, Ewan? Because I think it's originated in the UK. I'm not, no. But as I said, I'm not really a gamer in that sense. So um, I haven't followed up on that. Have you ever been a gamer? Well, not not really, no, not in U.S. terms of gamer, no. No, I just play the old game. What is the U.S. definition of gamer? Well, I, I see somebody who spends a lot of time in front of, a, you know, an adventure game or an interactive game and they're spending a number of hours, whereas uh, I just spend the odd five minutes between cups of coffee. Sure. So in today's terminology, that's what we would call a casual gamer. Right, right. Okay, well, I'm a casual gamer then. I see. <laughs> Uh, well, Retro Gamer covers games that came out primarily, I think, in the 80s and also new games that have been developed for hardware from the 80s. For example, Brian Peachy's Surf Shooter is mentioned in the latest issue, although I don't recall that it got a very good score. The reason I bring up Retro Gamer, specifically issue number 107, is because Craig Granell he wrote a lovely spread for the Apple II uh, a few years ago, and now he's done so again. I haven't gotten my hands on the issue yet. It takes a while for it to show up on U.S. newsstands, especially if you're not a subscriber. But uh, it's a comprehensive eight-page article or so that features an interview with Jason Scott, uh, a look at the Apple II and its games like Choplifter. And for this article, he interviewed, uh, as I said, Jason Scott, but also Steve Weirich and me. And I think he featured some photos that Andy Malloy took of Vince Briel's A2 MP3 card. I was very happy to connect with Craig after he mentioned Juice GS in Retro Gamer a few years ago, and I was uh, pleasantly surprised when he remembered me and dropped me a line a few months ago to say he was working on a follow-up. There is a version of the story that's online, but I'm actually not going to include it in the show notes because it's just a bastardized version of the print version. The uh, it, It's missing half the content. The captions are not the same ones that are in print, and the the online captions are written by somebody who has no idea what they're talking about because not only are they misspelled, but, for example, the photo of Choplifter, the caption says, Why hasn't anybody remade this game? Well, they have many, many times. For the arcade, for the Super Nintendo, for Xbox 360, for Game Boy. I hate it when publications do that for their their digital content. Well, even Craig said that this is unusual, especially when the issue has just shipped to subscribers and already the story is online. Usually they wait a while. 
So I I really don't know what the justification is for this, but it was so bad that I actually refused to read it online because I know Craig does better work than that, and I want to see it the way he intended it. So even though I could have read the article by now, I haven't, and I'm I've already been to Barnes and Noble looking for the issue. It hasn't arrived there yet. I'll try again in a week or two. Uh, before we move on, just real quick here, uh, I need to make a correction about the price of the second side card. The second side uh, second site suggested retail price uh, was one ninety nine ninety five, and they had a special introductory price of one seventy nine ninety five. Ah, that sounds more reasonable. Yes, I was uh, browsing around the other day, and I, I stumbled across the the Stanford Silicon Genesis Project interviews. Have either of you heard of this? Doesn't ring no. a bell to me. No. Um, so Stanford basically has been collecting and compiling uh, interviews with. Uh, a lot of um, early computer industry um, visionaries and, and movers and shakers. They, they had a, a really good interview, actually, with uh, Bill Mensch of uh, Western Design Center, who uh, Bill did a lot of work with Chuck Peddle on the original 6502 and then went on to found Western Design Center, where he created the 65802, uh, the 816, a bunch of other chips. So that's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in, in hearing what he has to say about um, his time working on, on those chips. And a quick item here, the Retronaut has posted a series of uh, Steve Jobs photos that were taken by Norman Seif back in 1984. Norman's, I think, most famous and perhaps iconic picture of Steve Jobs was of him in the lotus position with the Macintosh in his lap. And these pictures, I think, were from that, that same or concurrent photo shoots that he did. So... Uh, they were never published before, um, so check them out. You know what I love about old photos of Steve Jobs is that even back then, you can you can just see how smug he is. <laughs> and you, you don't need to know him. You don't need to know what he went on to do and how he reinvented Apple and you know monopolized the MP3 market and the iPhone market, and or even how he treated his employees way back then. You just look at him and you're like, that's a guy who is pretty full of himself. <laughs> yeah, you could just looking at his eyes, you can just see where that power comes from. There, there is one interesting shot of him in his office. He's sort of smiling. He's got his hands on his face, and you can see there's a row of Macintoshes behind him. There's a similar photo of him in the the Walter Isaacson book at the back of Jobs in that office, but he had Apple threes in the background, and he doesn't look nearly as happy in that one. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I actually like the photo right after that. He's just sitting on the floor with what looks like a glass bottle of beer, and it looks like he's making a gesture with his hand as if he's shooting himself in the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, one, first of all, him sitting on the floor is consistent with the Spartan lifestyle he lived even years later. Well, and if you look right behind him, you can see his stereo equipment is sitting on the floor. Yeah, yeah. And these aren't college kids who can't afford furniture. This is Steve Jobs' lifestyle. Right. Although I don't know why he's making that gesture. If Assuming I'm interpreting it correctly, is he just like, this interview is going on too long, just shoot me? <laughs> uh, there are a couple of fun pictures there of the Macintosh team that I had never seen before, too. Um, one of them, they're making a human pyramid with a little baby right at the bottom. It's kind of cute. Yes. The baby is not providing support for the pyramid. The baby's in the second picture as well, if you look to the right. Yeah, a smaller version, I think. Yeah, so these aren't photos of Steve Jobs. These are photos that Steve Jobs is in. I don't know that he's actually in those team photos. 
I don't see him in the team I, photos, but I don't either. Yeah, no. uh, well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs was what was that? There was a line in the movie. Uh, he he's a man uh, for the people. He's not a man of the people. Which movie is that? I, I think it was. Um, you know, I, I forget. It was some some Roman senator was talking about um, his privilege and why he gets to do things that the common the commoners didn't. And he said, "I'm a, a man for the people. I am not a man of the people." Um, and this one I stumbled across um, actually in Comp Sys Apple II Marketplace uh, crew, Daniel. He posted that Melissa Barron is now selling her glitch screen prints from the Oregon Trail project that she did uh, a while back. And I took a look at them. They're, they're not real big, but they're not very expensive. They're only 10 or $15. Um, and she printed them out on high-quality uh, paper. Um, and they look kind of neat, and I've ordered a couple for myself, and I can't wait for them to arrive. And there are only like 10 or 15 of each one of them. So, And what will you be doing with them? I'll, I'll probably put them up on the wall with some other uh, Apple-related posters and photos that I have. Will you frame them or just tack them? Um, I like to frame stuff. I don't like punching tack holes and things. Yeah, it looks like she's selling these through Etsy, which is a well-known and respected online store for independent artists. And I'm just hoping that her work does not show up on Regretsy. Are you familiar with that site? I've heard of it. That's the one where it's like an epic fail kind of a website. Sort of. People browse through Etsy for art that isn't very artistic, and then they profile it on Regretsy. Oh, that's not nice. Actually, the artists whose work is featured on Regretsy, they often see a huge influx of sales. So although it may be demoralizing, it's financially lucrative. Well, and it might be a good motivation to, you know, get better. Well, I think I remember the anecdote I heard when I first discovered a regretsy was somebody like had a, uh, they crocheted a butterfly or something and it, it, it looked just like a unshapen mass. And it, and it was fo- featured on Regretsy. And so this person went back to Etsy, updated her description listings so that in all caps it said, it's whimsical. <laughs> Wow, yeah, there's some there's some really bad stuff on this website. But not in Melissa Barron's shop. So this is all quality material. Yeah, and it's it's definitely I mean for the price. It's it's not like you're paying hundreds of dollars for that you would for uh some some other artists out there. Yeah, I've I've bought stuff off Etsy. I have a Pong themed doormat that people wipe their shoes on and a couple of other stuff. It's a good it's a good place. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Ewan, if I were to walk around your house, since you use an emulator primarily, what would I see other than perhaps a physical Apple II that would tell me you're a retro computing enthusiast? Well, you'd see my original Apple II, which I keep proudly place in the living room, um, which was uh, actually an American one, not a Europlus. It was before the Europluses, but it's been converted to 50 hertz and a few other modifications I put in myself. You'd see that, and you'd see a big Apple poster from back in the old days, one of the black posters with the coloured Apple logo on it. Um, all the you know books lining the... Loads and loads of books that I've picked up over the years, reference manuals and so on. So plenty of, plenty of evidence. Nice. Maybe these screen prints would be a nice addition to your home. Well, I'm hoping to put, uh, put up my plaque when I get it, so uh, that, that will take pride of place. That's right. Even though you were not present at Kansas Fest this summer, you were awarded an Apple II Forever uh, Award. That's right, yes. A belated congratulations to you. Thank you. And also, Ewan, you delivered 
a congratulations to Jeff remotely at the event. You record a little video for when Jeff received his plaque. And that was cool for two reasons. One is you didn't know you were getting your plaque when you recorded that. And secondly, that was the first time that a lot of people at Kansas Fest had ever seen or heard you before. That's right, yes. I think it was Ivan Drucker who said, Ewan was not at all what I expected. And I don't know what he was expecting, but it was nice to sort of blow their minds a little bit. Well, having been, uh, you know, working in this for over 30 years, uh, I find this is always the same, that you, you get to know somebody online one way or another, and then when you meet them, they're just not at all what you expect. I remember a couple of years ago, I met Steve Cavanaugh, who lives here in Massachusetts. He's formerly the publisher of the Apple Blossom newsletter. And when he met me, he was just shocked, not necessarily at how young I was, because you know, I was in my late 20s at that point, but... He's like, wait a minute, if you're in your late 20s now, then that means that when we met online, you were like 14. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. He's like, wow, I thought you were 29 like back then. <laughs> That's one of the interesting things I've always found, that meeting people online is completely ageless. You have no idea how old they are. Um, and it's, uh, you know, that that's one of the great things about it. Or you also don't know their gender or their race. I mean, for a while there, I thought true, Lauren, true. I thought Lauren Damewood was a woman. I admit it. You know, just the the first name threw me off. Yeah, the first time that I saw Ewan was was on that uh, the the Google Street View that he popped <laughs> up in, and you, you can't really see him actually see Ewan that well. So when I saw him at Kansas Fest, I kind of had the same reaction. But <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's the same guy. <laughs> yeah, think. that's right. You were captured by the Google Street View van. That's right. That's right. In, in his Kansas Fest 99 shirt. And thanks to iOS 6, I can no longer be seen on an iPod or an iPhone. <laughs> Are they still using that image, or is it just warped? Oh, no, it's still there, but uh, the, the only way of, with an Apple product now to see it is with a, a real of the Mac, uh, on Safari on the Mac. You can't get Street View up directly. Um, there are ways of doing it, but the Apple's maps no longer do it on the iPhone and the iPad. But you can do it through Safari, right? Nope. Because when you go into Safari on both of those, you go into a custom interface by Google, which gives you the satellite, but it doesn't give you street view. I presume because it's a flash-based um, thing. Oh, interesting. Because I know that some degree of Google Maps works from iOS Safari because that's what Apple is recommending. Their iOS 6 maps aren't receiving the acclaim that they expected. So, so Tim Cook apologized for Maps and said, while we're working on this, you should use Google Maps or Bing or something like that. Yeah, I think it's a, it, there's mixed things here because when you look at the new Maps, uh, some of it is brilliant. Uh, if you happen to live in a big city or you're looking in one of the big cities around the world, the flyover is really very, very impressive. But when you come to places like my village, I'm still roughly the same resolution that... Uh, Google Maps shows you for satellite view, but if you travel 10 miles east of me, you can't even see a town a friend of mine lives in. It's just one big blur. Um, and it's it's like the Google Maps were for the UK back about eight years ago, where only parts of it were in high resolution and other parts are either black and white or uh, so fuzzy you can't make anything out. Well, you're kind of fuzzy yourself, Ewan. True, true, true. One last news item before we close out this section this month. Regarding Richard Garriott, whose documentary I finally saw, A Man on a Mission, about his trip up to the space station. Very cool film. I hope to have more to write about it later. But I think it was in a previous episode of Open Apple where we discussed the future of the Ultima franchise and how 
Richard Garriott believes that only he and his team can create the true successor. I don't know if it was at that time that we mentioned that there is a new Ultima MMO, Massively Multiplayer Online Role-Playing Game, being developed. Well, the online news video service, Checkpoint, produced by the team of Loading Ready Run for the website Penny Arcade, recently did a brief bit about that computer game, and I would like to play that segment for you now. BioWare is making a new Ultima MMO based on the world of Ultima 4. But since Richard Garriott doesn't work for BioWare, and he still owns the rights to the character of Lord British, the world of this MMO will be ruled over by Lady British. Is anyone else hoping that it actually ends up being the same character, but just that he's taken to wearing a dress and everyone in Britannia is just rolling with it? What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Charles Mangan, a name you may not know, but the work will be familiar to you. A couple of years ago, Charles created a Frankenstein monster when he took a Mac Mini G4 and put it in a Disk 2 floppy drive. So this looks on the outside like an Apple II floppy drive, but you lift up the little lid and you put in a CD or DVD like you would into a Mac Mini CD tray. And inside there is your G4 Macintosh. There are ports on the back to hook up various USB and display devices. This was featured on a variety of Macintosh websites back in the day, and now he is selling it to make room for new exploits. It has a starting bid on eBay of $500, a buy-it-now price of $1,000. I interviewed Charles for a Computer World story I wrote earlier this year about Kickstarter because he used Kickstarter first unsuccessfully and then successfully to fund his development of a device he calls the Pressure Pen, which is a pressure-sensitive stylus for the iPad and perhaps other tablets. There are devices like that out there already, but his uses a slightly different approach that he, of course, believes is superior. Now, he also took a look at my blog, where I summarized the Kickstarter session I gave at Kansas Fest this year, and he sees some of those ideas as viable and is working on them. Perhaps that is why he is selling this device, is to fund future development on new products. So I think that's a very good and laudable goal, especially for the retro computing community. However, I don't have $500 to spend on a four-year-old Macintosh, and I certainly don't have $1,000 to buy it now. So I do wish him well, and you know, if he had tried selling this four years ago, I'm sure he would have gotten a lot of bites back when all the publicity was out there. Nowadays, I'm not sure the appeal is there. No, I've just uh, had a look at that uh, Mac Mini. I hadn't really seen it before, but that's uh, a bit excessive, I think. But he hasn't just dropped it in. He's obviously had to take the guts out to fit it in there. Right. And there's a pretty extensive photo documentary on Flickr that describes how he did it. So that's kind of neat. I, I still don't know that it's worth that price, though. No, no. But it's got the authentic um, foot marks from the drive that's been on top of it all its life. So last month we mentioned a couple of Apple III items because we had David Schmidt on, and he's a fan of the Apple III like me. And we talked about the Apple III that no one seemed to notice with the Titan emulator, uh, and it, it was missing keys and it didn't have the lid, and it went for, I think, like $127, which is pretty low for that sort of thing. It turns out that uh, Paul Hagstrom bought that one. He uh, sent me a note on Twitter saying that he was the lucky winner, um, and he received it, and it works so lucky, Paul. Yeah. Uh, and the other item that we talked about that David brought up was the Apple III with the 512K card. Uh, it was, had a profile drive, some really nice shape, and it turns out that uh, Egan Ford bought that one. 
Was the Apple III ever sold in the UK? Uh, it was available, but uh, it never sold well. Um, you know, it was really everybody was busy buying Apple IIs and IIes, and uh, so it never really took took off at all. So, kind of like in the states. E- exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Are you on eBay much, Ewan? Uh, not a lot. I use it for buying odds and ends if I want to, you know, bat- odd batteries and this kind of thing from the Buy It Now sites. Uh, I use it a lot for that. You know, got some good shoelaces at a good price the other day. Um, but otherwise, most of what I've bought have been cameras because my photographic background, I've got an interest in uh, what are now vintage cameras, 35mm and uh, these kind of things. You're able these days to buy all the cameras that in my youth I d- just dreamed about. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I think. That's half the driving force behind eBay is recapturing one's youth. I was saying, you know, when I was a teenager, I was uh, photography was my thing then. Um, it's what I was trained in at college, and uh, you know, I'd look to things like like M3s, and they were, you know, they're just something you could never ever possibly own. Um, nowadays, you could pick them up for, uh, you know, five hundred pounds can get you quite a good camera. Nice. Five hundred pounds isn't that about like eight hundred dollars? About that, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot more than I would spend on a camera. Wow. Well, there's one camera that I would like that's based on the Leica, and it's made in England, the Reed, um, because after the war, they all the the plans for all the Leicas were freely available from by the West, and by the, uh, the Russians had the same access, and uh, it's considered to be better made than Leica, but so few were made. It's now a, a very valuable camera. And uh, the, when they do come up, they tend to go for about two thousand pounds, so say three thousand dollars. Wow, that's a lot of sales of Spectrum right there. That would be yes, yes. <laughs> Especially now since it's free, right? Uh, yes, yes, or or it should be anyway. Well, it's uh, yes, it is free. Another familiar name to the Apple II community has been spotted on eBay, and that would be Sean Fahey. He's selling a couple of cards that were never finalized and made commercially available. These would be the Ramworks VGA card and the 2C VGA card, which were demoed at Kansas Fest a couple of years ago. Its German developers were in attendance. And I guess somehow Sean had some prototypes uh, because they are labeled as prototypes on eBay. And they both sold. Uh, The prototype Apple 2C VGA card sold for $36 after seven bids. And the Ramworks VGA interface for Apple IIe from Applied Engineering, I'm sorry, so this is not the same thing that I thought it was, uh, sold for $56 after nine bids. So that is not a lot of money. And I'm surprised, especially that the 2C one didn't come out at a higher price because this has been listed on the Ultimate Apple II site that Anthony Martino runs. And for quite some time now, the website basically said, we have no further updates on this card queries to that effect will be deleted. I'm not quoting verbatim, but it sounds like he's gotten a lot of interest in the card over the years and just didn't and wasn't able to take the development anywhere and it sounds pretty much abandoned because both Anthony and Henry Corbis of Reactive Micro shut down their Apple II stores a year or two ago and it was supposed to be a hiatus but they haven't come back yet. So I don't know if we'll ever get to see the actual VGA card as it was intended. So if this prototype is the only one of its kind, I think it should have gone for a lot more than it did. It would be a shame if this, if Sean selling this is sort of an indication that that this is truly over. If this was the only one of its kind, I would think that's all the more reason for Sean to hold on to it because it's so rare. And Sean does preface most of his auctions by saying that he's selling it to preserve marital bliss. <laughs> it may be 
just time to clean out the garage. Yep. A sentiment with which I'm familiar. I don't know if this qualifies as a trend or not, but I've been seeing on eBay some folks selling software that is generally freely available. For example, ADT Pro. Somebody has put this on eBay, even though it's an open source product. And he's selling it on a floppy disk, both five and a quarter inch and three and a half inch. So he is providing you that service because otherwise you'd have to download it and constitute it into a floppy yourself. More significantly, he's selling the USB to serial adapter and the serial cable. So this is sort of a turnkey solution. It's everything you need software and hardware-wise to get ADT Pro up and running. The thing is that you can assemble that same kit yourself for not much more trouble and for a lot less money just by going to, say, retrofloppy.com. And you can get everything you need right there. Instead, it was going on eBay for 160 bucks, And I can't tell if it actually sold or not, but regardless, that's a lot to ask. Yeah, that, that feels a lot like gouging to me, especially when you're taking the software that you can freely get and the cable that you can pick up for a couple of dollars. You know, they're, they're, the guides on how to use all this stuff or you can get it as a PDF. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, there's, there's, I guess there's a bit of the convenience factor, but $160 is, I don't know. That, that kind of bugs me. Well, the developer, David Schmidt, who was on our show last month, he actually doesn't have a problem with it because he doesn't control his software. It's open source, so people can do whatever they want with it. But he does agree that it's a little bit expensive. Yep. And uh, when I bring it up here, it says clearly not available in the United Kingdom. So he's not shipping outside the States. You would think that for 160 bucks he'd ship it anywhere. Right. Exactly, yes. yes. Maybe maybe he wasn't expecting to get that much. There's another seller, uh, Dr. Ken B., uh, who I believe is the same guy that runs another website, an Apple II-related website, um, who's doing a similar thing with the Apple II operating system kits that he's putting together. Um, and it looks like it's basically a collection of different versions of Apple II operating systems, DOS 3.3 and ProDOS, that you can buy in a kit from him. Um, he's saying on here that the Apple, that, that the Apple II Operating systems are free from Apple, um, although I don't know that, I mean, just because you can download them from Apple, I don't know that that means that you can redistribute them without a license. And if you can't, then I guess this would be software piracy. I don't want to accuse anyone of that without knowing the facts, but that kind of feels like that to me. It does, it does to me too. I mean, certainly you can sell the original software that you purchased. Right, yeah, but that but, but I, that's not what this is. No, he's no. I, and I'm not there to see what he's doing, obviously. But this sounds a lot like he's just downloading it from Apple, burning it to a disc, and selling it. I love how that word "burn" has infiltrated our vocabulary. <laughs> we, we were never burning floppies on the Apple II. Well, maybe Jerry Ellsworth was, but well, maybe she was. <laughs> there was a protection system for um, three and a half discs that I saw, where they actually physically burned a hole through the the. The, the material of the disc, so so that if you tried to copy it, of course, you wouldn't have that uh, burn hole there, um, and it wouldn't work. Must have been a byproduct of the flame wars. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, yeah, I, I just I don't, I don't think this is a good thing that he's doing. Again, there is the convenience factor of getting the discs on floppies because he does say, although you can download these unless you have an Ethernet card or something else, the actual reconstitution can be challenging. I know Syndicom actually does have a license to sell this stuff. I don't know if they're currently shipping it, but it is listed on their online store. So if you want 
the discs, you can either download them or purchase them from Syndicom. I don't know what agreement Dr. Ken may have with Apple, but I suspect that Apple is not currently handing out licenses for this anymore. I wouldn't think so. I'm sure they wouldn't even know what you're talking about if you oh. asked. <laughs> Prodos, what is that? Yeah, like I once went to a Apple store and asked them for an ADB adapter. This was like five, ten years ago. And they're like, an A to B? You oh, wanna, really? Wow. You want to convert A to B? And I'm like, no, ADB, Apple Desktop Bus. Come on, guys, you're supposed to be a genius. <laughs> and they weren't. Wow. And that was on the Macintosh, of course. Right. You know, I mean, this wasn't even an Apple II thing I was asking for. I I needed this to... I had just upgraded my Macintosh. I want to use my old Macintosh peripherals with my new Macintosh, and they didn't even know how to get me to do that. So memories are short at Apple Incorporated. Not to bring up any un- too unpleasant memories of the of the old CSA2 Flame Wars, but it wasn't this exactly what Dr. Tom got in trouble for to begin with. He was selling copies of WordPerfect software. And I don't think he was selling, but what he was doing was taking other people's programs, bit-sectoring them and putting in his own information and then passing them off as his. I thought that was what he was doing. Yeah, well, he started doing that with Brutal Deluxe, but I think I think the initial uh, the initial contact that, that Joe Cohn had with Dr. Tom was when Joe saw Dr. Tom's ad for $5 copies of Word Perfect in the local newspaper. I have absolutely no history with this story, so mm-hmm. I, I, I cannot confirm or contradict Okay. It's a complicated one. Richard's got a, used to have on his website a whole lot of the, the history on it on there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's an important part of our history and perhaps more so to some individuals than others. But yeah, I mean, I, I would hope that keeping this segment in the show won't bring up too many painful memories. Yeah, we apologize in advance. Yeah. Feel free to write the hate mail directly to me. <laughs> okay. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Moving on, there have been a couple of uh, interesting little, I don't know if peripherals is the right word, accessories based on Apple II products, like this uh, cigarette lighter. There's a cigarette lighter that looks like an Apple II, and you flip the top of the monitor to get the flame to come out. Yeah, I've seen uh, the guys over at uh, um, Retro MacCast have talked about, I don't know if this is the same one, but I know they've talked about this Apple II lighter uh, in the past. These have showed up every now and then, and they tend to tend to go for a pretty penny. Yeah, this one is clearly labeled sold, and it says it had a price of $500, so yep. somebody dropped half a grand on Sounds this thing. Sounds about right for, for the ones that, that I've seen in the past that, that sold. And $80 expedited international shipping showing up on my eBay. So for the size of the thing, $80 is a bit bit much, I think. But I think we do need to remind all our listeners that smoking can be hazardous to your health. <laughs> so if, if you want to use this lighter in the style of old text adventures to light your way in the dark, go for it. But just be careful what it is you're lighting and then sticking it in your mouth and your lungs. Yeah, just a quick note on the shipping here. I've seen that a lot, um, not just internationally, but even here in the States. Uh, b- because eBay has raised their fees that they're charging sellers, the sellers are, have, some of these sellers have uh, decided that they'll get their money back by raising shipping and handling charges. So $80 to, to ship that internationally doesn't surprise me that much. I see. Well, I see, like, you know, somebody to ship. I I see a, a an Apple II book, for example, that I want. I can't remember which one it was specifically. The book was like twenty dollars, and the shipping was thirty dollars, and it was coming from Michigan, which 
it's crazy. So it's a profit center for them. Right, exactly. And that, that's how they're making their money back from eBay. Well, having been an ineffective eBay seller before, I can say that it is worth overestimating the cost of shipping as opposed to underestimating. Because there's there was one auction where I sold it for 40 bucks and I ended up losing money on it due to the shipping costs. That happened to me, too. I sold a Commodore Pet to a guy in um, in Italy, and the shipping was almost as much as he paid for the unit. So. And how much had you charged for the shipping? Uh, I had charged $250, $250, uh, just because of the size of the, and the weight of the thing, and it turned out to be almost $400 to ship it to him. Ouch. Yeah. And he, he paid like $500 for the pet. So. Live and learn. Yep. Another little toy designed to look like an Apple II. I saw this in the news a couple of months ago, and I found the headlines kind of misleading. It's a USB thumb drive that looks like a miniature Apple II, which is actually kind of cool, especially if you're pub- if you're plugging it into a CFA 3000. Sure. I mean, that'd be kind of meta. You're plugging an Apple II into an Apple II. I was going to say, it's about the only thing you could plug it into because its width precludes it going in almost anything else. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when I first saw the headline, I'm like, a flash drive for the Apple II? I'm like, what exactly does that mean? An alternative to CFFA? But no, this is just, I mean, once it's plugged in, it's working just like any other thumb drive. I'm not sure that I see on this listing how many gigabytes it is. I would guess it's either like 32 or 64, but it really could be anything. And it also says in the headline, one of three. So I guess there are two other eBay auctions with this exact same item out there. And they, he does link to a YouTube video. I think we featured that on a2central.com a while back. Yes, I think you did. And the, according to the YouTube video, it is 32 gigs. So the YouTube video gives a nice sense of the scale of how big this thing is. You know, when you first zoom in on it, it might actually look like an Apple II because it's fairly uh, detailed. But then, of course, you zoom out and you're like, oh, it's just a little thing. It sounds like these were not made in any mass quantities. The eBay description says made of resin and hand-painted to detail. It took about 40 hours to make. So I mean, if you consider the amount of work that went into it, it's, you know, it's worth buying. Right now, after seven bids, it's only up to $13.50. Oh, wow. Uh, ends October 2nd, so there may be a ramping up on the price at the end. The seller's name is 1.MHz, and due to the presence of the period, I'm guessing that's not Carrington. Oh, I think it's Carrington just masquerading. Uh, it's in America, New York. It's uh, it's sold from. It'd be funnier if it didn't ship to Canada. That's right. (laughs) Even Carrington can't buy his own products. That's why he has to sell them. I can't have this here. Well, that's a good price for a 32 gigabyte stick anyway. Yeah, definitely. Hmm, Maybe I'll bid on that. I'll have to take a look at what the other two are going for as well. Maybe I will too. Well, if it says says one of three, doesn't that usually mean it's a, a lot? I would if it was a buy now auction, but it isn't. It is an auction, yeah. Yeah, it, the auction doesn't say you know, three available. It's actually in the headline where it says one of three. It's not one of three auctions. This is one of three units that he made. So either he's keeping the other two or he's going to sell them separately later. But right now, this is the only one that's on eBay. He's probably going to see how the first one goes and then uh, put the others in at a higher price, starting price, if uh, it goes well. I am adding this to my watch list. Me too. And then, Ewan, you found some stickers. Yes, I did. Some time ago, I was browsing around, and uh, 
when you buy an Apple product, right from the very start, you've got a little pa- uh, either a pack of stickers in the, in the early instances with the Apple twos, um, or in the case of more recent ones, you just get a little sheet with two white Apple stickers on them. But uh, back in the days of the coloured logo, uh, you used to get a sheet which had four on, too large and too small. And I see that uh, this chap's got six available, 14 sold, and he's selling them for $11, so $12. And, oh, shipping cost of $2. Now, I have a pack of 40 of those sitting in my cupboard because uh, every time we bought a computer at college, I would keep all the stickers for myself. <laughs> so <laughs> at that rate, I could make quite a bit of money out of them. But uh, there are, I also found there's quite a lot of people selling various stickers. There's some interesting black ones around, which I've never seen before. Um, and there's also sheets of two, and of course the the more recent white ones are still being are being sold. But uh, I thought it was quite interesting that people are making money out of things they've uh, got for free from Apple. Where do you suggest folks stick these stickers? Well, I've got one in my fridge. Um, I used to have one in the car. Um, various places on various books and things. Uh, there's various places you can put them. I'm sorry. Did you say in the fridge or on the fridge? On the fridge. On okay. the fridge. <laughs> Wondering every time, like you open up the cheese drawer, there's an apple. Okay. <laughs> no, no. You always put things in front of your fridges. So yes. I've got that, and uh, well, I haven't put it on my new fridge because I had to get a new one last year. But I had a Beagle Brothers um, sticker on there for years. Oh, nice. Yeah. The the only downside of stickers, I've you know, I've gotten stickers like these either with my Apple or even the ones that came with the Nintendo Player's Guide way back in the day. And I've always been afraid to use them because they're one use only. Once you stick them to something, it's not coming off. True, true. I think a colored Apple logo would be a cool thing to put on my car just because it's so retro. Yeah. But, yep. but I'm not sure how many people would get that it's different from the solid logo that they see nowadays. I've heard reports of, like, the rainbow logo stickers being stolen out of cars. Really? Yep. Who would do such a dastardly deed? Apple fans. But those are the same people who are using them in the first place. Why would they attack their own? Because you can't get the rainbow ones anymore. Unless you go on eBay and buy Ewan's auction. <laughs> That's right. Or you can just break <laughs> into a car and steal one. Oh, that almost sounds like more effort. <laughs> just go on eBay. Go yeah. On eBay. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of the eBay auction this month. Okay. Uh, is is that correct? Yeah, I think that's about it. And that also brings us to the close of another episode of Open Apple. Hooray! <laughs> well, you and I hope that you've had a wonderful time on our show. We've certainly enjoyed chatting with you. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, any parting shots, any hopes for the Apple II community or your place in it? Uh, no, I mean, I'm going to continue to do what I do and... Uh, uh, I've got another project in mind, which I won't say what it is yet because it's still in mind, but uh, hopefully that will become next after I've got the safe the safe two update out the way. Um, and uh, I will keep on as long as I can doing what I can what I like doing. We certainly like what you're doing. I think uh, Spectrum is one of the best programs I've ever used for the Apple II. It's one of the few environments that I ever learned to program in, and that's even after going to school to major in computer science, which I ended up not doing because it wasn't as fun as what I was doing in Spectrum. I think my only regret was that only a few people actually went into depth in what you could do with the scripting language in Spectrum. Uh, I mean, Jeff did it with, with Sys and uh, various other people, but... And I did it myself, of course, in the early days with Sam and various other, and the early version of Safe. Um, but uh, I, I always felt it was a shame that other people didn't do in depth what it could have been done with it. 
Well, I think that's a common phenomenon in a community this small is that we're all indie developers. We all, we don't have to bow to the demands of a publisher or an investor to create a product that appeals to the masses. We can make stuff that appeals to us. And when we yes. finally, when we finally release it, we sometimes discover that we are the only people it appeals to. <laughs> well, I sometimes feel that with what I'm doing now. I don't always get feedback. You, you usually get the bad feedback, not the good feedback. But on the other hand, when you do get feedback, like from Andrew Rowan about wouldn't it be nice to have this feature, you can actually add that feature because one person asked for it. Oh, yes. And, but uh, I find in general programmers uh, are very approachable. I mean, I've had this sort of Macintosh programs where something uh, uh, didn't work or didn't like. You just send an email off, you can contact uh, the author, and people will respond. Um, and I currently in with one develop, Apple developer too, of one game I do play where I didn't like his recent upgrade. So I complained to him. And at first he wasn't too happy, but uh, he's decided to do what I wanted. And <laughs> so we're just, we're just waiting for Apple to release it in the App Store. Oh, great. Uh, it's nice to hear that people can be that receptive, even in the larger community. Oh, yes, yes. Great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing what this mystery project of yours is. <laughs> It'll be about perhaps a couple of months down the line. We'll see how we, how we get on with it. And at that time, I'm sure we can butcher coverage of it on this show. <laughs> As we <Yes>. usually do. Because, <laughs> yeah. like you said, we only get the bad feedback, and we need to give you a reason to write in. That's right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much, Ewan. We appreciate your time. Talk to you later. Yes. Goodbye. Thanks, Ewan. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. I always felt it was a shame that other people didn't do in depth what could have been done with it. Well, I think that's a common phenomenon. 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 <laughs>